0: freedom of speech and press freedom are sacrosanct in a free and democratic society. In Canada, these rights are so vital that they're outlined in Section 1 of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And yet, it constantly feels like these ancient freedoms are under attack. My guest on today's episode of the True North Speaker Series is Canada's foremost free speech champion, and he has often single-handedly led the charge and fought back Against overzealous government intrusions on our liberties. Ezra Levant made headlines all the way back in 2006 as the editor of the Western Standard magazine for being the only Canadian journalist brave enough to publish the infamous Muhammad cartoons. For the crime of committing journalism, he was hauled in front of a human rights kangaroo court and questioned by a state official. Fortunately, he recorded his closed-door hearing, just so the world could see how far Canada had slid in respect to upholding the basic freedoms we once enjoyed.
1: We published those cartoons for the intention and purpose of exercising our inalienable rights as free-born Albertans to publish whatever the hell we want, no matter what the hell you think. I've probably given 200 interviews with people other than the state where I give a very thoughtful and nuanced expression of my intent. But the only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so.
0: In our conversation today, Ezra and I discuss the changing media landscape, comparing free speech battles from the 1990s and early 2000s to those today. We talk about the difference between big government censorship and that which comes from Big Tech. And we discuss some of his biggest battles, including True North and The Rebel's successful lawsuit against the Trudeau government during the last federal election. Ezra is a fearless champion of freedom, a highly astute political commentator, and perhaps the man most hated by the mainstream media, liberals and leftists alike. He's also a successful entrepreneur who has built one of the largest media companies in Canada. We talk about the best and worst moments at The Rebel, get into the details of what really happened with Faith Goldie in Charlottesville, and we discuss the media's smear campaign against him and the rebel. Love him or hate him, Ezra continues to be a happy warrior, speaking his mind and fighting for freedom with their tremendous army of online followers, fans, and supporters. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let me know what you think in the comments section, and please share this video with like-minded friends and family. Don't forget to subscribe to True North. And if you'd like to support this podcast, Please visit tnc.news/donate Well, as I was thinking about it, I think throughout the course of my career, you've interviewed me dozens of times, maybe 50 times going back to the Sun News Network. But this is the first time I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing you. So thank you so much for sitting down with me in the flesh, you know, despite all the crazy coronavirus stuff that's going on around us. Yeah,
1: no problem. Well, I, uh, you have so many interesting things to say, and we're always delighted to have you on Rebel News. So I'm an open book for you.
0: Well, great. I, I think that there's so many people out there who have been following your career for such a long time. I know for me, the moment that I really first remember seeing you was the Human Rights Tribunals in Alberta. You were the only journalist, one of the only journalists brave enough to publish those Muhammad cartoons back in the early 2000s, I believe. And it was a big controversy that, you know, students were learning about in law school and stuff like that. And so you have always been a champion, a hero of free speech in Canada, and you continue to be uh, to this day. So I, I wanted to just first ask you about those sort of early days in your career. So, so you, you're you a trained lawyer, and, and you sort of transitioned from being a lawyer to being a journalist and writing in the mainstream media. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, that transition and what led you there.
1: Sure. I was part of an early wave of young Reform Party youth, I guess. Uh, Rob Anders was part of that. Uh, Jason Kenney joined a little later, Raheem Jaffer. And I went to law school while everyone else went to parliaments. And I always sort of thought, well, maybe I'll run for office, maybe I'll run for office, but other things intervened. And I I quickly abandoned the law, went to Ottawa with Preston Manning and whatnot. But um, I don't know. I felt like I always had one foot in politics, one foot in law, and one foot in journalism, even since I was a kid. I think they are all related. And um, with that human rights battle, I mean, I was always a bit of a troublemaker, let's be honest. (laughs) But I did not know then that that would shape so much of my life to come. I'll be really candid. The Western Standard was a fortnightly magazine. That's when people, the Internet was growing, but it was still a paper magazine era. And I thought, geez, we're fortnightly. That means every two weeks. By the time we cover this story, I said to our editor, Kevin Levin, The Sun is going to cover it in their trademark tabloid style. Um, National Post is going to cover it, and they're not afraid of radical Islam. And everyone else is going to cover it. So we can't cover it in the same, here's the news or the cartoons. We've got to be more reflective. And so we were. We didn't put it on the cover. We thought, oh, everyone's going to see these cartoons by then. And it wasn't a hot news story. It's, you know, a a media analysis of what happens. It was almost written in a boring way. And we hid, not that we hid them, we just thought it wouldn't be news anymore. But between when we finished it, and it went to the presses, and then it goes to the post office. Things took so long back then. It wasn't like the internet. We realized, oh, my God, no one else is doing it. Not even the spicy Toronto Sun. Not even Ken White's. I think Ken White was still running the National Post, so he was afraid of nothing. Or Maclean's magazine was still rambunct. So it dawned on us, as the, the thing was working its way through the printing presses and the mailhouse, we are going to be the first and only people of any size publishing them and we just sort of panicked, <laughs> not not in a bad way. You just said, "Oh, what do we do? What do we do?" Okay, let's get some security for the front door. Let's do this and that. And it was a it was a hit. And we started getting phone calls, tons of phone calls, um, about it. And I remember we had a little team of people answering the phone, and they would say, "Well, here's all these different people signing up for subscriptions." And I looked at the names, and they were Muslim names. I said, "You, this isn't right. Surely this. What are you talking about?" They weren't calling to complain, they were calling to subscribe to show uh, loyalty and support because I, I, to this day, it's almost 15 years later, but I remember a letter to the editor we published by someone named Rawah Khalid. I still remember her name. And I'll paraphrase. She said, I didn't sail halfway across the world um, to have Sharia law follow me. And I thought, oh my God. And I would, I would not have guessed that we would have been flooded by phone calls from Canadian Muslims who were happy to have someone not bend the knee to Sharia censorship. And so it was very exciting and nothing bad happened to us. But then the shoe dropped and then the Alberta Human Rights Commission, a government organization, really prosecuted a kind of a blasphemy prosecution, investigating, grilling me. Well, I turned the tables, we recorded the grilling. Again, no one would ever believe in the year 2008, it was. Okay. The Cartoons were in 2006. It took them two years for the Alberta Human Rights Commission to get around to interviewing me. I just knew that if I didn't record it, no one would believe me.
0: Right. So was that a, was that a legal recording? Did they know that they were being recorded? They did
1: know. In fact, we spent about six months negotiating okay. with the Human Rights Commission the terms of that interview. Okay. And I insisted that we be able to keep a record of it. Well, what does that mean? So we arranged it so it was at my lawyer's office, and I got there early, and we set up the tripod very openly on the table, and I got there early, and my lawyer got there early, and it, and it was on our safe turf. So the investigator walked in, it was a Friday, and she just wanted to go home for the weekend. She walked in, she looked at the camera, and again, this was 2008, this was before the era of smartphones, so to have a fairly ostentatious home movie camera there, it's not really normal, but she looked at it, I could see she paused for a second, and then she said, oh, whatever. I got to get out of here. We spent six months arranging it. So it was not a secret camera at all. Yeah. And for the course of the next hour, she asked questions. And I had really thought about one question only. Because remember, this has been two years since the complaint was filed. Human Rights Commission has moved so slowly. Right. I had been asked 100 times the most obvious question. Why did you publish cartoons? That's a pretty good question, mm-hmm. and I would. Ex- well, it's a central artifact of the news story, and we're a magazine. We can show pictures. If you're in the radio, you have to paint a picture with words. Um, it's the center of the news. Um, they're actually very boring cartoons. That's an important part of the story to know how hypersensitive this is. These weren't obscene. Um, it's a statement of free. Like, there's a lot of good reasons, and I, I'm, I practiced my answer maybe a hundred times with real journalists. But I I made a moral decision before that interrogation. I thought, and and Muslim students would write to me, I'm doing a thesis on this. Can you talk to me? And they thought I would be standoffish. I engaged. Um, But when the government asks you, why did you publish those cartoons? I don't think you can give the same answer. My answer was not a secret. I gave it to anyone who would ask. Friendly or unfriendly? But when the government asks you, they're asking for a reason. What's the reason? If your answer does not please them, there's a penalty. There's a fine. There's some other order. So I would talk to almost anyone and I would try to be so reasonable, hey, please see it my way and can I convince you I'm right? And I understand why you're sensitive to this because it might be blasphemy, but try and see it my way. I would sort of plead with them to take my persuasion. Sometimes it would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. But when an agent of the state says, why did you publish this? You cannot say, oh, please, sir, let me show you how reasonable I am. Please let me show you my intricate philosophy for why. No, 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 no. Because the reason that question is being asked in a government interrogation is because your freedom turns on it. Your fortune turns on it. Your legal status turns on it. And so to give a reasonable answer is to sort of submit. It's to abide and agree with, their right to ask you on pain of penalty. If if I met that interrogator on the street, hey, how are you, hey, how are you, here's my, I would have a conversation like a normal human. But when it's a government interrogator, even though she was dressed in casual clothes, and it was very casual Friday.
0: And she seemed sort of bumbling, and she seemed sort of caught off guard, like I don't know why he's being yeah. you know, yeah, aggressive she was with so me, or whatever, with yeah.
1: But my freedom and fortune turned on my answers. And so I made a moral decision to say I, the only reason I'm going to tell you is because it's my right to do so. I think I said it's my bloody right to do so. <laughs> and and to, instead of trying to sneak through, oh, I'm just a tiny mouse. Please let me go by. No, no, no. Whatever reason is most offensive to you, government investigator, I invoke that reason. I plead guilty, in effect, because there's no way I'm going to try and win my innocence because I don't. I think this whole thing's a sham. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that very morning, I republished the cartoons on our Western Standard website. Um, and I told her that, I said, this morning I've republished them, that's what I think of you. And I went home that day and my heart was pumping, and I was sort of mad, and and I had been mad, and I went home and I had never uploaded anything to YouTube before in my life. YouTube was still brand new.
0: Was it part of Google back then?
1: No, I don't think so. And PayPal was super new, and blogs were still sort of new, and I had never done any of the things, these things before. And I managed to edit the video into little clips and upload them, and I thought, well, I'm going to send this to my friends and maybe 100 people, maybe a few thousand people will watch. Well, wow. those videos went super viral, right. hundreds of thousands of views, And this was in 2008. Mm-hmm. And because, like I say, no one would have believed that it would have ha- If I would have said I was just interrogated by the government of Alberta about p- publishing cartoons, nah, you weren't interrogated. Well, I was. And they asked me why I did it. And they asked me about my religious thoughts or my political. No, no, they didn't. Well, the video didn't lie, and within weeks that interrogator quit the case because she was getting so many calls from the public. And within months, the Human Rights Commission dropped the whole case without a hearing. Wow! The Vancouver Sun had uh, an editorial a little bit later saying the Vancouver the the, uh, the Human Rights Tribunal murdered its own reputation. That was in relation to a similar case against Mark Stein. The BC Human Rights Tribunal murdered its own reputation. So that was 2008, 2009. I was being prosecuted, Mark Stein was being prosecuted for something McLean's magazine did. That's where Ken White was at the time. He was at McLean's. And there was a public change of the mood that we have gone too far down the path of political correctness. Mm -hmm. And so the conservative government under Stephen Harper passed a bill to repeal the federal censorship provision of the Canadian Human Rights Act in Alberta, where I had been investigated, um, the not-so-sympathetic provincial PCs also made changes and a last little factoid I want to bring to your attention is that a survey was done by Compass which was a, a little pollster back then interviewing dozens of working journalists so it wasn't a sen- it wasn't a, a statistically valid poll of the general public it was phone calls to working journalists what do you think should be do- should have been done about the cartoons And 70% of working journalists surveyed in in 2008 said, not only should Ezra have been allowed to publish them, but our media should have published them also. 70% of working journalists in the year 2008 said, we should have all done it out of solidarity, out of newsworthiness, out of freedom. Well, now we're in the year 2020. And I promise you, Candace, that if you were to do that same survey today, you would be lucky to have 30%. Mm -hmm. You'd be lucky to have 10% who said, yeah, we should publish something like that. People would say, oh, it's racist, it's systemic discrimination, it's hate speech, uh, deplatform you, prosecute you, hate crime. Um, the uh, In a dozen years, the entire temperature has changed. Worst of all, in the media class. I put it to you that severely normal Canadians still love freedom of speech. And I bet you Raouk Khalid and other refugees from strict Islamism, still believe in free speech, but our intellectual class, our cultural class, our professors, they've gone silent at best. They're actually part of the woke mob and I, I think things are worse now than they were before.
0: Well, it's interesting because you know there's so much free speech on the internet now, and I think that's part of the thing that the tech companies are now scrambling. Like, what are we going to do? Because you can put any anyone can put pictures up on Twitter. Anyone can kind of publicize their own things. So it, to me, it's almost shocking that so many media companies were afraid to publish the cartoons in the first place. And you can kind of say, okay, well, there was a lot of retaliation against the artists and people in Denmark. Uh, they, maybe they were afraid for their own safety. But it, it, you know that 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 seventy number of working journalists. I'd I'd be really curious to see what it is now because in in some ways, you know, political correctness has gotten much, much worse, but in in other ways I do feel that there are so many outlets and there are so many people who want to get the truth and know the truth that they can find it because there are, you know, independent outlets like the ones that you've created or or we've created here at True North.
1: I'm gonna politely disagree (laughs) with you on that and I'm gonna give you two proof points. One is a recent instance of Rex Murphy at the National Post. He's their star columnist. I think he's probably their most read guy. He's a character, he's a Canadian icon, and he's, he's a very good arguer. And he wrote a piece saying, you know, Canada has its problems, but we're not inherently systemically racist. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. But even if you disagree with him, all right, disagree with him. But 30 of his colleagues, usually young millennial hires at the National Post, I, I read the list of names and I Googled them all, who are they? 30 people at the National Post signed a letter the editors demanding that that never happen again mm-hmm. and demanding all sorts of rules and what you can say and not, that's the majority of working reporters at the National Post, a newspaper that was explicitly founded to be freer, conservative-ish. Mm-hmm. And they actually had a struggle session where everyone vented and and demanded that Rex be silenced.
0: Right, and, and it's similar to what happened at the New York Times. The difference, Ezra, is that at the New York Times, you know, they're a center-left publication, and you kind of expect them to be overridden by these sort of woke millennials, whereas the National Post is not supposed to be that. It's no. supposed to be the conservative one. Oh,
1: and that's the thing, if they're in, if they're, you know, forget about raising the drawbridge, they're already in the castle. Mm-hmm. The major, So using the 70% number, mm-hmm. we went from 70% saying not only should we should uh, Western Standard and Levant publish the cartoon, we all should, mm-hmm. to 70% saying get rid of Rex. Because he said the, in fact, they ran an article by one of those young mm-hmm. uh, red guard cultural Marxists.
0: Who, who, who's a Financial Times reporter, so she doesn't even write about, or Financial Post, she doesn't even write about these social issues, she writes about business.
1: Yeah, Van and I mm-hmm. and I very carefully read her rebuttal, and I mean, I disagree with most of it, but so what, but there was a key line, she said, He should not be allowed to have a national forum for these. So she didn't say he's wrong for these five reasons. She said he's wrong for these five reasons, and he should not be allowed to argue back. And I read this amazing picture book. I'll show it to you later because I've got it with me, of the Cultural Revolution in Mao's China from 1966 to 1976, the book is called Red Color News Soldier. Mm-hmm. And it's photographs from a People's Liberation Army, actually a Red Guard photographer, of the struggle sessions where people had to self-denounce mm-hmm. and weren't allowed to defend. They had to wear dunce caps in the public square as thousands of people pointed and shouted. And the psychological pressure, the political pressure, it was pure totalitarianism. It was informants uh, accusing each other. And it wasn't once. It was a 10-year reign of terror. Mm-hmm. and. There's a couple of photos in this book of someone who didn't go along with his self-denunciation. So there were all these sham trials. And one guy didn't want to go along with it. So they literally stuffed a cloth in his mouth so he wouldn't protest his innocence. Another woman had her jaw dislocated because she kept saying, no, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And and I swear to God, I felt, I, I had first come across this book in Hong Kong a, a dozen years ago. It was a shocking book to me then, and when I heard what the struggle session of the National Post was like, it was the first thing I thought of, stuff a cloth in Rex Murphy's mouth, if he won't self-denounce, well we're gonna bloody well stuff a cloth in his mouth. That's
0: pretty much, that's pretty much
1: what they were saying. My second proof point is much more terrifying. It's social media. We used to have a very colorful character at Rebel News called Tommy Robinson, Uh, it's not his real name, Stephen Yaxley landed his name, he lives in Britain, and he's worried about the Islamification of Britain. Um, he's very careful to draw a distinction between Muslims. He has many Muslim friends, and between Islam and the Islamification of the public square. You can take him or leave him. I like the guy. He's a call for character. He's got a criminal record. He's you know he's a working he's, class. He's, Brit. he's
0: imperfect, but he raises a real a real issue in society that people are afraid to talk about.
1: I think so. And as Majid Nawaz, the Pakistani Brit, a talk show host in the UK, points out. Because the establishment media refuses to talk about those issues, it's fallen to the Tommy Robinsons to talk about them. People wouldn't go to Tommy Robinson if the Telegraph and the Times and the Mirror and the Guardian would have a fair hearing of these issues. So Majid Nawaz says it's because we're so afraid to talk about it that Tommy has the mic because no one else is talking, and it's a very good point. So anyways, Tommy worked with us, and he was he did great work. He left us in 2018. And he's done his own thing. But since he left us, I mean, it's coincidental, he's been deplatformed more and more. Kicked off Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, even TikTok kicked him off. Kicked off place after place. Okay, we've seen that before. But he is on a special blacklist that has been confirmed uh, by Facebook itself. Even putting his photograph on Facebook without even his name will be facially recognized and taken down uh, any conversation about Tommy Robinson that represents his views or treats him favorably will be deleted as a as a strike only, the only way you can describe or discuss Tommy Robinson on Facebook is if you denounce him now that sounds like an insane dystopian 1984 style rule that doesn't sound real does it
0: It's crazy. But
1: it was confirmed when a Danish TV station was doing a show on Tommy. Tommy was coming to town. They wanted to denounce him. They're they're liberals in Copenhagen. So they put on their Facebook page, Tommy Robinson is is coming in. What's your toughest question for him? We're going to get him. And that was taken down by Facebook because it wasn't a denunciation. So they complained to Facebook. Facebook's Scandinavian boss came on the show and said, we have a blacklist, Tommy's on it, you cannot say his name except to, whoa! You cannot even, you can't have audio, you can't have video, and they will use the highest technology, facial recognition, to automatically detect that. Now, we know that Tommy Robinson's on it, who else is on it? Mm -hmm. And is there any oversight, and how do you get off it? The government has a no-fly list, but you can find out if you're on it, you can appeal it, you can sue. How, How do you know? Who do you sue? What was the hearing? Can I appeal? What was I accused of doing? This Danish TV station did a 15-minute segment with the head of Facebook. And they couldn't explain why he was on it. They couldn't explain what he did to get on this blacklist. I tell you this because you don't know what's being censored, right? You don't know what Google has taken out of the search rankings. You don't know what they pushed down. One day, a favorite person you were looking for just isn't there, oh well. You've got 100 other people to follow. I went through the Alberta Human Rights Commission process, and I hated it, but at least there was a process. Mm -hmm. I had lawyers. I had hearings. There was something I could hold on to. But uh, a couple months ago, I interviewed one of Facebook's censors based in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. He worked for a company called Cognizant. Mm -hmm. 1,500 people worked in their Phoenix office three shifts a day censoring 200 posts per day each. Mm -hmm. That's 300,000 posts per day. They censored in this little Phoenix factory.
0: Right, and they're not even Facebook employees, so there's no real recourse. Because if you bring it up with Facebook, they kind of shrug and say, well, we we have contractors that do that kind of work.
1: Yeah, and I was talking to this guy, and he said, oh, we had a Canadian election handbook. I said, oh, you did, did you? Mm -hmm. And he looked it up while I was talking to him. He said. Um, No one was allowed to criticize uh, Jagmeet Singh's turban. Okay, now I wouldn't want to criticize his turban. I would criticize his ideology. That's sort of mean and personal, but people call this guy fat or call this guy short or call, you can be mean to people, you can say terrible, but you're not allowed to be mean to Jagmeet Singh, that was a rule. Um, He told me that the the phrase Nazi, which is sometimes hurled at right-wingers, that's allowed but feminazi which is sort of a made up criticism of feminists who act very authoritarian feminazi is banned but not not you can call someone a Nazi on facebook and they won't take it out you can't call someone a feminazi um, open borders immigration was specifically mentioned in their election handbook for censorship um, if people in for the canadian election so here's a guy in phoenix who's been given a, an election censorship handbook And with 1,500 people in Phoenix, they're censoring 200,000 posts, sorry, 300,000 posts a day. I don't know how many are in Canada. We don't even know about it. We don't even talk about it. There's no recourse. And you don't know what you didn't see because it, how would you know what you didn't see? You don't know what you didn't, what you don't know. So in many ways, things are much darker now because at least I wasn't in a dark room punching at shadows when I was facing down Charlene McGovern in 2008 with the cartoon kerfuffle. In 2020, and this is an election year, who knows? Right. Who
0: knows? What they're coming out, and it's interesting because I, I feel like the tech darlings in Silicon Valley was sort of viewed upon very positively by the public up until a couple of years ago, and then things really took a sour turn after Trump got elected, and a lot of people blamed Facebook and you know the whole Russia Gate and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I feel like the tides are turning, so I'm not going to disagree with you, but I, I'm a little bit more optimistic just in saying that I think that you know if if the tech companies are doing this and they are, and they're getting exposed, it's just a matter of time before they have to become more transparent, pivot, You come up with a new way of doing things, come up with a transparent constitution that they're going to use so that there is recourse. And I hope there is, and I think that part of the reason that we even know about this stuff is because of the journalism um, that you guys do over at The Rebel.
1: Well, essentially to say I rely on Alan Bukhari of Breitbart's tech Mm -hmm. correspondent. He has a lot of great sources in these companies. Again, I'm more pessimistic than you, and I I hope you're right. But um, what's Google afraid of? A fine? Uh, Are they afraid of someone saying mean things about them? I don't know if Google's afraid of anything other than maybe being broken up in a trust-busting action that Trump is obviously not going to achieve. Um, I don't think they're afraid of anything and I think they regard themselves as larger than any national law. I think they regard themselves almost like a country of their own and a lot of these companies, Facebook in particular, are run by men who have a messianic complex. They think they're the messiah or a godlike complex. Sometimes they say as much. Oh, yeah. And it's Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, and these companies are the largest spenders on lobbying in Washington, D.C., and they colonize conservatives, too. I mean, the Democrats are already on board with censorship, but, you know, $100,000 is enough to often buy off a conservative think tank. Um, I am deeply worried about it, and we ourselves have been hit by this. Um, And we have someone we can talk to at some of these companies now. We were demonetized. Um, We were growing at 8% per month until early 2017 when all the conservative websites were shut down. Uh, We were on course to make over a million bucks in ads. Wow. From YouTube alone. And then they knocked that down by 90%. They just demonetized it. They say, oh, advertisers don't want to be on your controversial stuff. Says you. Says you. They don't demonetize Liberal sites, like the Young Turks, for example. So um, I think that so many of the changes are done subtly, quietly, and you don't even know, and there's no one to ask. Last anecdote, (laughs) one day we were given a notice by Facebook. Uh, You have violated uh, Facebook policies. Click this button to unpublish your site. And the button said unpublish. Okay, so that's the only button there was. There wasn't two buttons, (laughs) unpublished or I disagree. That was just one button. And they didn't say what policy we violated. And they didn't say which post we made that violated what rule. They just said, you've done something somewhere. We're not going to tell you what. And there's just a big button in front of you now. Just touch it, and your entire site is gone. Now, we just made such a fuss. And they finally said, oh, it was a glitch. A glitch, eh? Um, can you pretend I'm not quite that dumb? Can you actually give me a real... Oh, it's a glitch. You wouldn't understand. No, try me. Try me. I'll try and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like, just complete baloney. And when all these glitches happen on one side of the ideological divide... Look, San Francisco is the most left-wing city in, in North America. And Silicon Valley are the elite. And it, and people are terrified of being conservative there. Mm-hmm. And they don't, even, they don't even realize how left-wing they are. Anyway, I'm I think that censorship is the problem of our age because it's free speech is the strategic freedom upon which all other freedoms are based.
0: Absolutely, I, I agree. I think that the concept behind the social media platforms was that it was going to enable free speech on a different level and allow every everyday Canadians, Americans, citizens to, to express their views. So you wouldn't have to have a Alberta Report magazine, you wouldn't have to have the, the, the printing press, you know, all of the overhead. Everyone could just state their opinion. You know, the problem for the Silicon Valley people was that when they extended this big free speech platform to everyone, they realized that people have a lot of different views. You know, there's not a lot of conformity. There is intellectual conformity in elite circles. You know, the Silicon Valley is sort of replicating like an Ivy League environment no. where they do all have the same opinions. And my husband and I lived there for a couple of years. We, we, we interacted in that environment. And it, it's, it's very much about conformity. And so all of a sudden, you know, you have all these people from all over the country, all over the world, that have really interesting, very different views. And who's to say that you shouldn't have different views? I mean that's that's what makes a society more colorful. But the but the idea I think really since 2016 and Trump, the sort of there's been a moral panic and, and, and they're trying to reverse themselves and, and crack down. So I, I agree that we're seeing some really truly awful sort of moments of totalitarianism, but I, I just have to remain optimistic that we're gonna swing back towards the The more that people realize what's happening and these kind of things get exposed, they're gonna demand transparency. And maybe it is through the government. Maybe the government does have to break up some of these companies or at least bring in some kind of rules around intellectual property so that people own what they put out there or something. I'm, 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 maybe it'll take decades, but I, I, I still wanna remain Optimistic on that, Ezra. I, I want to talk a little bit because you know you you've had experiences in the mainstream media. You worked for the National Post. You had a show on Sun News Network that bec- became you know the most popular conservative show in the country. And, and 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 then and then you kind of shifted towards independent media. So first, let's talk a little bit about mainstream media and what it's like to work inside that environment so why don't you tell us a little bit about the national post in the early days and and what that was like
1: sure i mean i started writing for newspapers when i was in college i was just such a a frequent letter writer i really enjoyed writing short letters especially if i could sneak in a joke and so one day the calgary sun editor said you're writing so many letters why don't we just give you a column and we'll pay you i think i wrote for free for months and then he gave me a raise to 50 bucks a column which was a lot of money for me back then and um by the time I was done law school, I had a little bit of a syndicate, Calgary, Edmonton. I was writing for a newspaper in New Brunswick called The Daily Gleaner. So I had this it was sort of fun. I mean, I did dabble in student journalism, but it was more fun to write in The Edmonton Sun. When I was going to law school at the University of Alberta, if I could fire back at my professors in the pages of The Edmonton Sun, it felt like an equalizer in terms of power because I was a student at their mercy. Um, so I was always dabbling in that, and when um, the National Post was born in 1998. I joined them soon after that. It was wonderful being on the ground floor of an explicitly conservative newspaper that was so mainstream because it was owned by the biggest newspaper tycoon in the country, Conrad Black, and that had a healthy budget. And this was 98, 99, 2000, before the Internet came in and killed everything in the media. So it was really the glory days. And to be in to help set the ideological direction of the paper was wonderful. And back then... Because Conrad Black and the paper was so big, the internet was not as big by comparison. Mm-hmm. He was the mainstream. So you can't de-platform the guy who has the biggest platform. So it was great. And um, over time, yeah, I went on and did other things. But um, I switched to TV when Corey Tonight gave me a call and said, we're starting at the Sun News Network with Quebecor, and you got to come out to Toronto and be part of that. And even though they're owned by a Quebec-based tycoon, they're going to be pro-conservative and pro-Western. And that's the funny thing. Quebecor, as the name implies, is very much Quebec-centric. But they built an English-language cable news show that was pro-Western, pro... I mean, it was just very unusual. And I think Pierre-Carl Pelle, though, sunk $50 million bucks or more into that. But at the end of the day, the CRTC regulators euthanized it. And Stephen Harper lacked the political um, courage. Well, I was going to say courage. I was going to say ruthlessness Mm -hmm. to say to the CRTC, you approve this or you're out of a job. Do you think Jean-Claude would have allowed some bureaucratic agency to kill off a left of center media company? Unthinkable. Mm -hmm. He would personally have made the phone call himself. Stephen Harper allowed the CRTC to kill uh, the Sun News Network by not telling cable companies you've got to run this. I mean, in the names of oh, I'm libertarian, I'm hands off. Well, you let someone else take those. The guys you left it up to were not libertarian and hands off. You let the incumbent legacy liberals kill off this conservative project. By keeping your hands off, Stephen Harper, you didn't keep it neutral. You gave it to your enemies. So they euthanized the Sun News Network on the eve of the 2015 election. I'm not saying it would have stopped Trudeau, but you If you would have had a big, healthy, national, mainstream TV channel just blaring away 24-7, you would have changed the media landscape the same way Fox News changed it in America. But they didn't. And when the Sun News Network shut down in February 2015, I was very sad. It was the best job of my life. It was so wonderful. But I, I I could sense that day was coming. And so when we went in to pick up our severance checks, I said, you, 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 you come to my place and let's see if we can cook something up on YouTube and we spent a day in my living room and um, we hatched a plan and we just okay let's find a camera does anyone have a camera let's find a microphone anyone have a microphone okay how do we upload to YouTube okay we figured that out Mm -hmm. so we did it the first day okay can we do it the next day okay and we did it 10 days in a row and we put up about 50 videos in 10 days and we took a breath and we wrote to all our people because we had some email addresses and said, all right, the Sun News Network died. If you want us to live, help out now. And I'm not sure if I ever disclosed the figure, but that first email r- raised $85,000. And I, when that came in, I said, okay, maybe we're going to be okay. Because I had eight people. I was paying them for my own severance. I said, I'll pay you out of my severance till we get it going. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and by the way, the liberal media couldn't believe that we raised eighty-five grand that way. They said no that's you must have some secret billionaire donor um, they just because they couldn't believe that grassroots media could make it because I don't think they believe they could make it without some big benefactor the CBC or a billionaire or Trudeau's bailout and we never looked back so here we are we're about five and a half years old and you know our staff grows and shrinks we're, we're about 24 people now um, We've built some real stars, some have gone on to other networks, some, some stars have sort of exploded, <laughs> but others have gone on to become real shooting stars. Um, but most importantly, I think we've filled part of a void. Our motto, we've had different mottos, but our motto right now is telling the other side of the story, and the reason we chose that motto is to remind the world that it's okay to have another side of the story besides the government line. And it's okay to tell the other side of the story, and that used to be a thing. And it's not a bad thing. Maybe you can't do that if you're on the government take, which so much of the media is these days. If I'm not mistaken, the CBC itself has more resources and more staff in the news side than all the private sector journalists in the country combined. That is not healthy. No. And then most of the private sector journalists are now colonized by Trudeau's newspaper bailout, Mm -hmm. and those on TV and radio are still at the whim of the CRTC, and if you get too rambunctious, the CRTC will shut you down. They threatened to do that to Schwa FM about 20 years ago, because they were too... So being on the internet is really the only place to be free. You still got to fight with the Facebooks and the Twitters, Mm -hmm. and don't don't think for a second they're not susceptible to political pressure, Mm -hmm. but here we are five and a half years later. We have 1.35 million YouTube subscribers, now I wish we got a buck a month for those, it's free, but people watch us. Um, We have viewers around the world also, that's another fun thing is that the Sun News Network was just in Canada. I mentioned Tommy Robinson, we were active there. We have American followers, we have Australian followers, sometimes we travel around the world. So we're still alive, it's very much citizen journalism, I think the only person in our whole shop with a journalism degree is David Menzies, and he's very man on the street anyways. And um, you know, we make our share of mistakes, but I'm, I'm very proud of what we've built. And um, when you have to make your money, 20 bucks at a time through grassroots donations, it forces you to be extremely attentive to what viewers like and don't like. And sometimes we get it wrong and we hear immediately.
0: Yeah, you get that immediate feedback, which you don't usually get in the newspaper or on the radio because you see the comments and they or and you see the view count and all that kind of
1: stuff. Right. And if you work for the CBC or, frankly, any government bailed out media, you actually don't even care what the public says. You're playing to one viewer, Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. If you please Justin Trudeau, you'll be fine. We have thousands of grassroots supporters, none of uh, whom, even our biggest donor is maybe 1% or 2% of our of our total revenue so although I'm very attentive to if someone says here's a thousand bucks I have a point of view but there's there's no one who gives us so much money that I feel like I am bound to him or to her and that's the great freedom is if you can look at any donor and say I really appreciate your point of view but we're not going to change our ideology or philosophy to get your thousand dollars from that comes a great freedom and independence and and that's actually why people give to us Um,
0: well, you develop respect that way. Like, you know, for for me, I, I love your journalism, Ezra. I probably disagree with about a quarter of what you say. Fair enough. But that, mm. you know, that is more likely to make me want to tune in and see you. And and we get the same thing at True North, where someone will say, "You know, Candace, I hate what you have to say about supply management. You know, I'm part of the dairy mm-hmm. business, I and, I, and I disagree too, with yeah. you. But I really appreciate these other five things that you do, and I respect you for that. And you know, that's normal and healthy in in a society. And so I feel like the the sort of independent citizenship journalism is much more closely to what, what the service of journalism ought to be.
1: Yeah, and people sometimes say, Ezra, you're always crowdfunding. I have two answers to that. The first is, well, then don't chip in if you don't want to. I mean, every time we send out a crowdfunding appeal, 99% of people don't give. And that's okay, because the 1% who d- does at any moment is enough to keep us going. The second is, I think it's the most honest way to live. I mean, like I say, YouTube has practically demonetized us, so we can't really sell ads. So what's the alternative? Have a corporate benefactor? okay, that's fine as long as you follow that corporation's interests. Have a government benefactor? Well, then you're not a journalist at all. So sometimes people say, oh, you're always crowdfunding. Yeah, let me know if you have a better way to do it. If I was a billionaire, I'd put my own money
0: into it. Right, and it's a it's a, at least transparent because people know that that's how you make your money. It's not like, you know, sometimes you see a journalism outlet and you realize that they're funded by like the government of Qatar or yeah. something like that. Oh, and yeah. you're like, okay, well, that, that should be disclosed right yeah. up at the front. I I think it's really kind of interesting how back then, you know, with the National Post and Sun News, there was a mainstream conservative voice in the media because that's basically been absent. I write for the Toronto Sun and even the Toronto Sun sort of teeters. Yes, sometimes they're really good editorially and firmly conservative, but other times they sort of go with the trends. And I think that there is a lot of pressure on them same with the radio stations the radio hosts to sort of see the writing on the wall and they don't want to be the next ones canceled so they just it's not that there's any active censorship but it's just like a self-censorship that happens and 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 it has such an in- influence like if half of the journalists in Ottawa work for the CBC that's going to impact the questions that are going to go to the the politicians and that's going to influence the way that the stories are written and, and it's all so You know, biased against any any kind of conservative opinion. It's it's just interesting to think that there was a time where those voices were legitimate and that there were conservatives in the mainstream.
1: And if you're one of the 50% or 40% of journalists who don't work for the CBC, you're thinking, yikes, if I get laid off, the CBC is the only safe bet. I better start to, you know, tailor my reporting so I'm a good fit as a CBC guy. So it does impact the non government sector. And you know post media they're taking 140 grand per week from trudeau don't tell me that's not subconsciously not on their mind i um, mean you, you can't be if i knew someone was giving me let me just make a different number fourteen thousand a month don't tell me i could separate that in my mind if there was a story to
0: attack about that the, about yeah. them yeah. I mean, i'll
1: be very candid when i worked for quebec or there were two things i wouldn't do no one told me this i'm just not dumb don't take on Pierre-Carl Peladeau and his dream of having the Nordiques in Quebec City. Just don't. And how about lay off Brian Mulroney, the chairman of the company? And you know what? There's 10,000 things to talk about. I don't regard that as self-censorship. That's just, okay, those guys run the company. Maybe I'm not going to shoot at my boss. And I don't feel like I was in any, any way censored. I felt like I was the freest journalist in Canada. But you'd have to be insane to go after literally your boss. So I didn't. Um, don't tell me that if you're working for Post Media, that's not in the back of your mind when the heritage minister is in the news and the heritage minister is the one cutting the check and like I say when I don't even know who's who's donating on any given day that's not on my mind at all all that's on my mind is am I staying true to what I think is right here my own conscience am I being fair enough and I sometimes sort of think well who who is the the average rebel viewer am I doing what they want that's a far better math than uh uh-oh will my company's lobbyists not get a meeting with the heritage minister now because i was mean to them and don't think that politicians aren't petty that way they're extremely petty that
0: way Yeah, I wonder if that was, I always wondered if that was part of the reason why Sun News didn't get their license because you you guys were too harsh on uh, James Moore, who was the heritage minister who might have fallen on his desk. But I I, I won't speculate, but you're absolutely right that politicians having that kind of power over journalists is is just, just wrong. And so I think that the independent media is the way to go. I think it's the way of the future. And if you look at the Canadian media landscape, you, know, you had Justin Trudeau bribing the CBC in his first election with $150 yeah. million. That money went towards creating a digital platform for CBC to compete with newspapers, because yeah. at that point newspapers were all coming online and that was yeah. how they were getting their money. So then all of a sudden you know, Trudeau made it so that the newspapers weren't profitable enough. Yeah. Then he had to bail them yeah. out and it's just like bailout after yeah. bailout after bailout. It, it, I, I, can't, I can't see it actually fixing the problem yeah. that, that there aren't enough you know, subscribers to these media outlets and i think that inevitably the models you know the model that you found and you were one of the first ones to, to go onto youtube and to build this big kind of grassroots audience and and, and it's been amazing to watch now i if you don't mind i, I kind of want to go into the history of the mm-hmm. rebel a little bit and talk about because you know you were this big rising star and you had this huge platform you had these really, really talented journalists that were famous all around the world. And then then sort of, I don't wanna say it blew up, but but there was a moment where Faith Goldie was down at the Charlottesville rally, and Mm -hmm. it was sort of the height of the moral panic around are Trump supporters Nazis and we've got these people who are acting kind of like Nazis in Charlottesville and Faith was there and she was sort of being too friendly with them. She went on one of the podcasts uh, with yeah. the Daily Daily Storm, I believe. Is it, wh- why don't you just tell us a little bit, as sure. much as you're comfortable, you're yeah, talking about what it was side. like on that side when, yeah. when that all blew up.
1: 2016 was an amazing year. It was the year of Trump. It was the year of dissident independence. It was the year of the rebel. We, we just blew up so huge that year. And some of our stars were Lauren Southern, um, Faith Goldie. I don't think Tommy Robinson was with us yet. I can't remember. I'd have to check. And
0: um, you even had Claire Lamont who went on to, oh, to start that's right. yeah. She yeah, was we, doing videos. You guys had a lot of talent all over the world.
1: Yeah, and I think we were growing pretty quick. Um, then Trump won, and we grew even bigger. And then we sent people down to the uh, inauguration in, in January. And we grew even bigger. So after the election, we continued to grow. Like we were growing eight percent per month. And then in February, the tap was turned off. We said, what's going on? Our income just fell by 85%. What's going on here? And that was the great demonetization. That was the panic in all these social media companies that said, "Uh uh-oh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook created Trump. We have to ensure this never happens again. That's not even controversial. That's pretty much documented what happened. So we had a financial blow then, but we thought, okay, let's just keep going through. Let's keep trying to grow. Um... And some of our staff got a little hot. I mean, when you go from when you're 21 or 25 and you go from being a normal person to being an Internet celebrity, when you have a video that gets one or two million views and 10,000 comments. And I think my observation is that sometimes women are more susceptible to love or hate comments on the Internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it hurts my feelings a little bit, too. But. Sometimes women have the most nasty comments put to them on social media or the most flattering. And if you're a regular human being and suddenly you become an internet celebrity and you have 10,000 people a day talking about you, you can become a little bit obsessed with getting that hit, getting that fix. And I think that happened to a couple of our people. Um, I have a memo I circulated in the office called Twitter killed the video star. It's about how Twitter can seduce you and you can start to live for the clicks. I think Twitter is responsible for the loss of more of our staff than anyone else. Anyways. Um, it,
0: the funny thing about Twitter is that there isn't really an upside. It's fun and it's a good way to learn stuff. But if you, if, say you have a scoop and you put it on Twitter, you, you know, you, you don't really drive anyone to your story. You kind yeah. of give it away for free. It's a vanity.
1: It's all about vanity. And it, I mean, I know the adrenaline rush of getting 10,000 people to like something. Mm -hmm. Anyways, you ask about faith. So, yeah, I remember that uh, weekend. It was August. And she had said, Ezra, there's this Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. I want to go on my own dime. I'd never heard of this, so I Googled it. And I looked at the lineup of speakers, and I said, I remember I wrote her. and I still have the email I wrote to her. I said, ooh, you know what? I don't like the looks of some of those speakers. They're a little bit out there. And... You know, alt-right, alt-light, what do these words even mean? I said to her, you know what, don't even go as a reporter because you simply being there, even if all you're doing is pointing a camera, people will think you're part of it, just don't go. And I forgot about it because, you know, this was before Charlottesville was a thing. And then I actually went away that weekend with my family and I get this panic call on the cell phone, Ezra, I just filmed a, a murder. Uh, that was when the car rammed a protester. I said, Faith, where are you? What are you doing? I had totally forgotten about this Unite the Right thing that she had asked me about a few weeks earlier. I I didn't even know where she... I had told her not to go, so I was surprised. I didn't know you were somewhere. But she captured the murder on camera. And so, weirdly, I spent the next six hours negotiating with different news agencies around the world who wanted to buy that footage. So I didn't understand where she was, what had happened, because I didn't remember this email exchange we had had weeks earlier. So I wasted half a day on that little, well, everyone's stealing our footage thing. I get back to the office the next day, and I say, oh, this is what happened. And I talked to her, and I said, well, I didn't want you down there, and that's not good. But if all you were doing was just pointing the camera and, and talking, that's not really marching in the protest. And people said, you got a fire, it's terrible, she's all right, I said, well, she went to an event as a journalist now, I hadn't watched all her live streams; hours of her footage. So I, I hadn't watched it all. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday goes by, and I'm, I'm fighting. I'm saying I'm not firing her because she went there. You don't fire a journalist because she goes to something. That's what you politically correct types do. I was, I was taking on a lot of water, but, I mean, I, I believe in some loyalty. Even I, I hadn't really pieced it all together what this thing was. And then Faith comes to me. I think it was on a Thursday or something, and she shows me her phone. She says, Ezra, look at this. So I look at it, and it's an email from a reporter saying, Faith, was that you on the Daily Stormer Nazi podcast? I'm doing a story. Get back to me. What? And she says, and I I could understand it. So apparently when she was down there, she wasn't just a reporter. She had kept hidden from me that she was participating in at least this one explicitly racist I would even say neo nazi if it's called the Daily Stormer that's a, a, a reference to Hitler's Der Sturmer that was, that was a Nazi publication so she had kept that secret foolishly thinking that, that you're going on a public podcast you don't think that's going to be public that's the public part of it so she said I know I have to resign I said no you're not resigning I'm firing you of course I'm firing her Not just that she lied to me. You don't go on a Nazi podcast. I said, get your stuff. We're going to go to the boardroom. You're going to say goodbye and you're out of here. Mm -hmm. And so we did. And I was stunned. Of all our staff, in some ways, I knew her the best. I, I had known her many years from Sundays. I had gone to Israel with her the jewish state and she was so zionist she out zionist the jews
0: i remember that actually cuz i had a personal trainer who was from israel and she knew faith and this was in california and like faith was very well known amongst israeli like like dedicated jews that were very pro israel faith so. went to
1: israel and she was <laughs> so turbo zionist yeah. she became this internet star, star yeah. this beautiful bold canadian girl who is more pro israel than the israelis Literally millions of views in Israel. It was incredible. I had, you know, I, I don't hang out a lot with the staff. I don't. Want, the boss doesn't want to say, hey, staff, hang out with me because they feel an obligation. But I would actually hang out with Faith a little bit. My family, met her family in Florida once. Um, she had come on some rebel cruises and stuff. So I felt like I knew her. And in many ways, she was the perfect employee. And I thought she was a Jew lover, if anything. Like, I didn't talk to her a lot about Jews. But by God, she was a Zionist in Israel. But, I, I mean, it wasn't a big focus. And, I mean, she used some of the lingo of the alt-right, but I thought she was doing so as a joker, ironically. And then for her to go down there, contrary to my direction, secretly go on this show and think it would be kept a secret, was stunning. I fired her within 60 seconds of learning that. And... I, by the way, that night I had dinner scheduled with Jordan Peterson, just oh. by, by coincidence. I was so frustrated. Anyway, I thought I'm going to go to dinner with him
0: anyways. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I've heard Jordan talk about Faith, and I, I, I've I known Faith and worked with her, and she was always a very nice person. very She was very conservative, and that that's, that's the problem is that because she used to be a conservative activist, and then she kind of went down the rabbit hole. It, you know, it was always used against any conservative who right. knew her, who interacted with her. Jordan Peterson once, I watched a video where he talked about how Faith was kind of just an agreeable person. Story, so when she's yeah. in Israel, she's like, yeah, this is great. I love Jews. This is I'm standing up for these people and this, they're my people. But then when she was down in Charlottesville, she felt that same comfort and camaraderie. But they were with people that she shouldn't have even been around with. Now, I don't know. You I just
1: told my story. I was going to tell that story because oh, I asked Jordan okay. Peterson that night. Like, I was so upset by what had happened. And yeah. I told him. And he used his psychological... I mean, he didn't diagnose, but he said she's very agreeable. He used that word. And the same things that made her such a great staffer Mm -hmm. because she knew exactly how to be a great rebel. She knew how to please the boss. In Israel, she knew... She grokked the situation. Okay, let me size it up. I can be the best of this. You send her to Charlottetown, surround her 48, 72 hours with these bad guys. She'll figure it out, game the system, say, oh, I can be their super Aryan girl. Mm -hmm. And like Zelig. I don't know if you know that old Woody Allen movie, a guy who would like a chameleon literally become whoever he's with. And that's why it was so shocking, because the person I thought was the perfect employee, well, that's because she was mirroring me back to me. Mm -hmm. And exactly, and Peterson put his finger on it. Because Faith is so agreeable, she actually allowed herself to be transformed in that I was stunned by it, and I was deeply sad by it, because I felt like I didn't know. I felt like I knew her better than I knew any of my staff. I was completely stunned by him, and that did damage to our brand because, you know, our star—beautiful, bold, courageous, funny, audacious—and
0: she and she knew everyone because, like, I first met her when I was working for Jason Kenney, and she back then was like a big conservative Catholic, and that, she loved Jason. With Kenny. Jason, she'll be a conservative and so Catholic. She was, yeah. So, so that's sort of what we thought. That, that's why I thought yeah. she was and then you know the fact that she had taken photos and done videos with all these different conservatives over the years started being used against people because Absolutely. the mainstream media just clung to it as, as a way to you know. She was the
1: greatest gift to the anti-right. Mm-hmm. I should tell you, uh, maybe I shouldn't but I will, a month after I sacked her because I had a friendly affection with her I called her up I said look I'm not mad at you because you defied me and went down. I'm not bad, mad at you because you're politically incorrect. I'm mad at you because you went on a Nazi show and said Nazi things. And you may think you're a martyr for, for free speech and censorship. That's not why you're fired. You did Nazi things. And she said, oh, well, on the street, people are on my side. No, because they don't know what you said and did. I actually went and I listened to that part. It was shocking. Yeah, I listened to it, and I said, you don't know this, but you've got a stinger in you. I said, come on the show. We're going to pull that stinger out of you together and you're going to, and I'm not asking you to, to, to say you're suddenly for open borders or you're a liberal or you're, for, I'm not saying that you've got to take out that bizarre mania that you express for that one weekend. We got to pull it out together and it might hurt a little bit, but we'll hug it out and you've got to correct that because you don't even know that stinger is still in you. I said, we'll hug it out. We're going to pull it out together. You're going to have to explain. We're going to talk about why it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And to my, I, I thought she would come back. To my shock, she went harder than ever. Never. I will not bend the knee. What? Mm-hmm. Who is, it? and uh, that was the last time we spoke. We had some text messages, and I, and I, my last words to her were, if someone truly loved you, they would take away your cell phone. Because it's that social media hit oh, I can be more and more outrageous and get more and more feedback from anonymous people who may even be robots or whatever, but it sure makes me feel good. And what a terrible loss to the conservative movement, to the country. She could have been anything. But she went. She fell down that rabbit hole. And having a chance to come back, she refused it. And it makes me a little bit sad, but the sorrow is being replaced by anger because of what she's done to herself and to those around her. Now, did it damage the rebel? It damaged rebel news in the eyes of the Fancy Pants who forever used that as a talking point. But it's a fact that when I found out what she had done, I fired her within a minute. And we marched her out shortly thereafter. Um, We acted as soon as we had the information. It's still embarrassing. Um, And people would use that talking point, and we had a few... uh, other people who used that as an excuse to, to, to kick us or punch us when we were down. But I want to make a clear distinction between what, what I call the 30 mean girls of the Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal media clique mm-hmm. and the severely normal people we were talking about earlier. Because when people saw we were in trouble, in in the media. And the newspapers were going crazy, and the CBC was going crazy. Wendy Mesley called us racist. How ironic is that? Wendy Mesley, who was dropping the N-word like confetti around CBC, she called us racist. Yeah, Wendy. So people said, oh my God, we're going to lose Rebel News. We've already lost Sun News. We're going to lose Rebel News. And I said to folks, I sent out an email, I did a video, I said, folks, we're having a Choppy waters. Here's my plan to get things back on track, hire a managing editor, make sure to keep an eye on staff. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I probably dropped the ball because we were growing so fast. I wasn't watching things close enough. I don't think there was any way to stop Faith from doing what she did. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was our senior reporter. How would I have known what she was doing? There was no way to stop that. But I sent out this call to our viewers and said, guys, I think we got off course. We fired Faith. We're hiring a managing director. We're going to do this, this, this. And you know what? That month, August 2017, which was the most embarrassing month by legacy media standards, all the fancy people said, We hate you. It was actually the most successful month for Rebel News in 2017. Because our people said, Ezra, we know you're not anti Semitic. You're a Jew, we think. <laughs> <laughs> we, we know you're not. Know, I mean, we've had such a variety of people come and go on the state, people of every background, every religion. Um, muslim uh supporters people you know visible minorities whatever I and mean, people who watch us know who we are so they didn't believe the shrill shrieks from those who don't even watch us the opposite they said yikes as we see what's happening we're going to be there for you we had more support in that crisis than in any other month that year mm-hmm. now i don't like that i mean i you know but it's a sign that what would Nixon say? He said, just because there's some chirping critters in a field doesn't mean they're the only critters there. There's a thousand cattle very quiet. He had a great metaphor about quiet cattle and noisy crickets or something. Mm-hmm. My point is, don't mistake the 30 professional scolds, Rajme Barton, Wendy Mesley, someone at the Toronto Star, someone at the Globe, Jesse Brown of Canada Land. Don't mistake that for Canadian opinion, even opinion. It, it, it's not. And I I said that being a grassroots media publication allows me to track what people want and don't want. It also allows me to stay sane. Mm -hmm. Because every day, it's not just Lauren Southern and Faith Goldie who get feedback online. I do too. Mm -hmm. Our average video is like a 98% like to dislike ratio. I, I don't think I let that go to my head, but I use that as an antidote for if I'm reading what the mean girls say about me, because they say, well, 98% of these 100,000 viewers seem to like it. So sometimes you can get down and say, am I the only person who thinks this way? Is everybody really condemning me? Am I an anti-Semitic Jew? <laughs> but then you just, you're lucky because you actually know what real people say. And I send, we send out many thousands of emails a week to our people and we get feedback. People don't believe the BS. Mm -hmm. They see us as an antidote to us. And whenever we step in a uh, pothole, which we do once in a while, our people aren't mad. You know, they want us to do better because they don't want us to hurt ourselves. But let me say this, Uh, I I talk too much about faith, but I wanted to tell you because we actually both know we're together. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that uh, if it weren't that, it would have been something else. I I want to give you an example, Mitt Romney, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: the most perfect man by mainstream media standards, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Um, he, He paid more than his taxes were required, like that kind of guy.
0: Yeah, if you watch the Mitt, there's a documentary on Netflix called Mitt, and it follows him during the campaign and it just paints this amazing picture of this remarkable man that's so committed to his family, his faith, his community, his country. Turn like, the other cheek. You know, you, you watch that video, you're like, why isn't this man president? He seems so amazing.
1: Because they couldn't find a Charlottesville moment on him. Mm-hmm. They couldn't find, so they said, well, he put his dog on the roof of a car. He had bind. Remember, he said, well, I've got binders full of women. Oh, you think women belong in a binder. You. No, no, he was
0: saying he's got binders full of names. So they, He was saying he wanted to hire a lot yeah, of women and he had a lot of qualified women. Yeah, I
1: have got binders full of women. No, no, women aren't in the binders. It's just their names are in the binders. So if my point is Mitt Romney is as close to a saint as you get, but they could demonize him. Preston Manning was gentle. They demonized him. Stockwell Day turned the other cheek. They demonized him. Part of the lessons of Trump is that they're gonna demonize you no matter what, you may as well punch back. Mm -hmm. And my point about Faith Goldie is she gave our critics an easy shot. It's been three years now, I really don't hear about it. Our millions of viewers, we've we've had more than half a billion views of our videos. People know who we are because they know who we are. But if it weren't Faith, it would have been Lauren Southern or it would have been Gavin McInnes or Tommy Robinson or me or Raheel Raza or Sheila Gunn-Reed or David Menzies. They'll find something. If they can find something about mild-mannered Mitt Romney to demonize, they'll find it about anyone. And so you have to make a decision. Are you going to lean into the wind or lean back? And they'll get you no matter what. It's like those red guards. When the red guard comes for you, are you going to self-denounce? Let me tell you how that ends. You don't do any better by denouncing yourself than if you refuse to. So why not live authentically and truly, even if it's the last thing you do, because they're going to get you anyways. And look, here we are. We're coming up. We'll be six years old next year. We're, four and a half, we're five and a half years old. In many ways, we're stronger than ever, bigger audience than ever in terms of uh, YouTube subscriptions. We made our share mistakes, but I don't think any of them are deeply moral errors.
0: Right, and, and once the thing happened with Faith, then they started sifting through things, and all of a sudden they held Gavin McInnes up and said, look, at, he promotes violence. Or, I, yeah. You know, his, his videos to me were always sort of funny and satirical, but they were sort of taking them literally, and, 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 and then, yeah, then it just turned into sort of a dialogue. Comedy's firewalk.
1: being destroyed by the left. Mm-hmm. You know, the dumbest little jokes. I just flew in from Florida, and boy, are my arms tired. Or, or take my wife, please. What? He wants me to take his wife? No, no, it's a joke. It's just a dumb joke. You didn't fly in from Florida. Your arms aren't. I know it's a joke. Gavin McKinnon, Gavin McKinnis is a conservative version of John Stewart. It's a. It's a. He's using humor now. I think Gavin, over time, could have been a little bit more careful about. He was. He enjoyed twisting the knife a little bit. Well, that's
0: comedy. Mm-hmm. That's comedy. And it is kind of hard to know when you're doing an online publication, you don't have the normal standards, So it is hard to know what the line is and where you can go too far. I know a lot, Gavin seems like the kind of guy who will seek out where the line is and then take one big step on yeah. the other side just to be provocative.
1: You know, he came with, with us to Israel too. And I have not laughed that much since I was a child. He is so funny and he'll size you up he'll spend a few minutes interrogating you and he'll find the thing you're most sensitive about and then he'll work on that until until you either laugh or cry. He's a unique guy, one of many unique characters that we've had in The Rebel. You know, I was talking to a unique friend of mine in the UK the other day, James Dellingpole, who's quite a eccentric. And one of my favorite things about the United Kingdom that's vanishing is they used to love eccentrics. Mm-hmm. They used to sort of be proud. Oh, look at that eccentric. Well, yeah, these are the eccentrics, you know, the saying. Reasonable people conform to the world. Unreasonable people make the world conform to them. So all progress depends on unreasonable people. Mm. I like that. Mm. And Britain especially has these
0: quirky people. Well look at their prime minister, I mean He's quirky, Johnson. yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean so
1: many, uh, <laughs> Roger Scruton. I can imagine what Isaac Newton was like. Mm. I mean that is a, qu- George Orwell, all these people. And you can say no, 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 I want everything homogenized. I don't want anyone to take me out of my safe place. Oh, he'll say something triggering. Oh, I just don't like that. You can live that way, but then don't go on the internet because it's too scary a place. One of the things I've loved at Rebel is the characters we've met. Do they always work out well? No. Uh, I I still like Gavin. He's a a little much. Tommy Robinson, I visited the guy three times in prison. That tells you something. You know, Faith Goldie, I think she made a terrible moral mistake, a moral mistake, a shocking one. Maybe it was a psychological mistake, as Peterson would say. But do I regret for one second being interested in interesting people and sharing what's interesting about them with our millions of people? Not for a second. And every week we try and be interesting and tell the other side of the story. And there's something in human nature that wants to see that. And it's not a dark part of human nature, it's curiosity. And it's maybe wanting to learn or maybe there's something I didn't know before. Or maybe I, my view is wrong in something. Or let me at least hear what he has to say. Or someone else is laughing. What are they laughing at? I don't apologize that we're not super boring. And that, you know, we were talking before we turned the cameras on. My chief criticism with the legacy media in this country is not that they're liberal. Of course they're liberal. They don't even know they're liberal. It's the sameness. It's the think-alikes. I call it the media party because it's almost like they have a party discipline. You're not allowed to read outside the party platform. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets me. They have the entire spectrum on their strategist panel. It's not, it's, they're lobbyists. They're not even strategists. The whole spectrum from A to B. I mean, uh, the National has their at-interest panel. They've got Chantal Libert, who was a Trudeau Foundation scholar. They've got... Um, uh, Althea Raj, Trudeau's official biographer. They've got Andrew Coyne who's a family relation to Trudeau and and they've got Rosemary Barton, a plaintiff against the Conservative Party. That's their spectrum of opinion. Hey guys um, Ken is a sniff bigger than your little club and it's not, I mean each of those people has a talent that I've just named I'm, I, I don't have an animosity, well Rosemary Barton, I can't think of hers right now but do you really have to be so same? Is vanilla the only flavor at your ice cream store? <laughs> it's, it's, it's sugar-free vanilla. It's not even real vanilla. Please let me. You know what? We're a little bit of Tabasco here at Rebel News, and you don't have to like the Tabasco, but um, you know we don't all have to be vanilla.
0: Absolutely. Ezra, I think it's so great to have a true diversity of opinions and thoughts, and that's really what you at The Rebel are pushing forward. So thank you so much for sitting down and doing this interview. I've learned a lot about you. And keep, keep doing your things. It's great to have The Rebel as part of the media landscape here in Canada. Well,
1: that's nice of you to say, and you've been a friend to us even in the tough times. So I appreciate that. And it has been a great source of joy for me to watch True North grow into such a powerful and influential group and a well-respected group you and your teammates are outstanding I have a special affection for Andrew Lawton <laughs> as you know but you guys are doing important work so I really am so pleased to have other independent people and you and may you go from strength to strength
0: great well thank you so much Ezra right on